So I'm not sure where I can stand where I won't be in somebody's way. Um, so I, you know, you I'll, move I'll do my, yeah, that's right. So it's a, sort of equal opportunity obstruction, as it, as it were. But uh, um, so great. Thanks. And, and delighted to, to have the chance to, to be able to come and join you. I think uh, um, there are you know, lots of things that we have in common, and I'd like to learn as, as much about uh, uh, your group as I, as I can today. Um, so I you know, thought it would be, it'd be wise to talk a little bit about genomic medicine. This isn't going to be easy to to manage, but at any rate, um, and uh, sort of looking at, uh, at a series of things, you may be familiar with this um, uh, publication from the New England Journal, or the series of publications from the New England Journal that uh, Greg Firo and, and Francis and Allen put together. Uh, it was an update, actually, of a, of a uh, primer that had been done a few years before, and there are a number of them, and, um, you know, there's, there's so much that's it basically has been, been kind of published on this, and then kind of questioning whether we're ready or not, that it it's kind of brings up the old saw, more has been written than is known on the subject. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, that, that may be the situation we're at, at least in terms of, of evidence. But it's, it really actually contrasts fairly starkly with uh, uh, what we, where we were just a few years ago, if you look at um, kind of what the, the well-established disease gene associations were in, in common complex diseases. There were very few. And this sort of now classic paper by, by Joel Hirshhorn uh, in genetics medicine was, was looking specifically at, okay, if we take all of the candidate gene uh, disease associations that we know of, of, and there were 600 that they identified in, in three or more uh, papers, how many of them really hold up and, and replicate? And it ended up being six, so only, you know, only 1%. Things that, that I think we would all recognize as being fairly well established. But beyond these, you know, there were 99% of them that didn't. And that was, I think, frustrating to, to just about everyone. Led to a, a lot of calls for, for replication in the, the work that, uh, that was being done. And, and I think that then in the, in the genome-wide era, and some of you may have seen these slides, this sort of being the genome in 2005 where there was a, the, the first genome-wide association study was published in macular degeneration showing this association with um, uh, complement factor H uh, on chromosome 1. And then over time, just really this just absolutely exploding. Um, and to, to the present time, we have uh, almost 1,500 published uh, genome-wide associations at P less than uh, an impossibly small value, at least when I was a a baby epidemiologist, they taught us don't look at anything less than 0.001 because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything beyond that. And, and obviously now, um, with the number of tests that we're doing being so large, it, it probably does mean something. Uh, these data are, are uh, compiled from the, the Genome-Wide Association catalog, which I'll talk about in, in a moment. I might just draw your attention to the fact that the poor, lonely X chromosome has, <laughs> has seven associations on Maybe it's eight by now. Yes. No, it's seven. Um, seven associations on it where a chromosome chromosomes of similar size have 40 or 50 associations. And this has, you know, raised our attention and why, why is that? I won't even mention why um, that has, you know, none. Uh, but there, there are, you know, clear reasons for that as opposed to the X that we know is important in you know, certainly Mendelian diseases. Why is it that there's not much? It turns out that there are um, uh, sort of a bias against analyzing the, the data on the X in genome-wide association studies. Only about a third of, of studies fairly consistently over time even try to analyze their, their X data. Um, the rest sort of exclude the data even before um, uh, quality control begins. There are some reasons for that. Some of them are, are technical. There is a high, higher failure rate um, on the arrays. There are more duplications, more pseudogenes, et cetera, on, on the X chromosome. But, but even given that, um, there's not a good reason for, for not having analyzed these data. Other than that, it's a little more complicated because you have to deal with the hemizygous state in, in the half of the population that is, you know, sort of genetically deficient. Um, and, and so, unfortunately, uh, what tends to happen is that they, they, the X gets excluded completely. So one of the things I do when I go around giving talks is to encourage people to take the X data. Um, there, you know, dbGaP, our, our database of genotypes and phenotypes, has data on all of the chromosomes from um, all of the studies that are that are deposited there, and you know they're they're ripe for uh, for analysis. So so if you get a chance, please please do analyze those X data. Um, so this, this sort of explosion, really, of, uh, of data from genome-wide association was, was uh, referred to even uh, only two years into it by Hunter and Kraft as, as drinking from the fire hose, which is an apt uh, analogy. And, and they noted that there have been few, if any, similar bursts of discovery in the history of medical research. 
And I think this really is a fair statement. I mean, what, what the implications of these findings are is still um, is, is being worked out. But, uh, but certainly, uh, prior to this era, we really you know, struggled to find anything in linkage and, and even association studies that would hold up. So, so this has been very good news. Um, the maybe not so good news, at least for, for my group, is that the, the growth in these publications is enormous and it's continuing. Um, it looks a little exponential-ish to me. Um, and there are you know, now over 1,000. Actually, this was as of uh, the end of September, over 1,000. Um, genome-wide association studies published uh, in the in the literature, and there's no sign that they're they're letting up at all. I did want to put in a, a little bit of a, a plug, or at least let you know about our catalog if you're not familiar with it. Um, we uh, keep a, a list of all of these. This started out actually as a, as a paper that um, uh, Francis and I did, in, uh, along with Lisa Brooks some years ago. Um, just, and we sort of said, well, let's you know, gather these seven genome-wide association studies that had been published at the time and, and kind of summarize what the findings were. And by the time it had been through review and that, they were worth 30 or 35 or so. And we said, well, that's really as much as we can, we can handle. And, and, uh, and Unfortunately or fortunately, it, it seemed as though it was a useful resource to put together. So, so happily, I have colleagues that agreed and, and agreed to do this. And we now have a, a very nice website um, put together by our, our Office of uh, Communications uh, and, and in collaboration with the NCBI where if you just Google um, NHGRI, GWA catalog, or GWAS catalog, or whatever, it comes up as the, sort of the first hit. Um, and it, it gives information on, I know this is, is small to read, but you know the date that uh, a study was added to the catalog, this is a, uh, the only reason we say since 1125 is that the, we went into sort of a whole next generation of the catalog at that point. And it, it was important at one time, but it's probably not important any, any longer. Um, but uh, we cataloged the author of the disease and trait. There's a link to the, um, uh, to the publication in PubMed, uh, the initial and replication sample sizes, the gene regions uh, based on cytogenetic maps that have been identified as associated, um, uh, the, chrome, uh, sorry, the genes that the authors have implicated and, and recognize that that really is up to the authors and sometimes they pick something that makes sense and sometimes they pick something that's a really good story. Um, and so, so you have to really take that with a, a grain of salt. Just recently, my colleagues uh, did manage to add in a, a link at NCBI that, that goes directly to dbSNP and gives on a more systematic basis. Is it, does it fall in the gene? Is it near uh, a particular gene or, or not? And so, so that's at least a little more systematic approach. And then uh, the, the SNP that's associated, the risk allele frequency, uh, the p-values, the odds ratio. So as, you know, as much sort of systematic information as we can extract uh, as possible. Um, there's a full description of the methods so that people whose studies don't, don't get into their, or are listed as sort of uh, nothing significant. We explain why it is um, that, that uh, their, their study wasn't included, and sometimes they're satisfied, most of the times they're not, but at any rate. Um, and then uh, there's a downloadable um, uh, database, so you can, you can download a, a tab-delimited <coughs> file and people can do anything they want to with that, and there have been a number of papers were published uh, coming out of that. There's a search uh, screen as well that we work hard to, to try to improve. Um, and occasionally we even get a chance to do a little bit of uh, research from it. So this is Lucia Hindorf who leads the, the catalog effort and, and Heather uh, who are two saints as far as I'm concerned um, in, in terms of, of keeping this up for the, the genetics community. And they did a, a really nice review of uh, what, where the SNPs that had been found up until I think this was early 2009 um, or 2010, where, where they fell in the genome, what their functional implications were, et cetera. So, so it's, a, it's been a, a fun project and fortunately it, it continues and continues because genome-wide association is not going away anytime soon. Um, so in just looking at the functional classifications of what we call trait-associated SNP blocks, so you needed to sort of look at the, the most strongly associated SNP and those SNPs that were in LD of, of 0.9 with it, meaning that 90% of the time essentially the two alleles of those two SNPs um, uh, traveled together. And essentially, um, uh, looking at where they fell, um, so here's the sort of the percent of, of hits that fell in non-synonymous regions, and you'll note only about 12% of them were, were non-synonymous changes in, in proteins. This had been anticipated as being the major place where associations in complex diseases would fall, and that has not at all been the case. You'll notice that 40% of them are in the introns, which, you know, nobody quite knew what, and these, these aren't splice sites, these are just introns. Um, and another 40% intergenic, and, you know, when when some of the initial genome-wide association findings were coming out falling squarely in intergenic regions, the conclusion was these must be wrong. There, there must be a mistake and there's, there's something else or, or whatever, and yet they've been replicated time and time again. So, so the fact that we're seeing these so heavily represented makes you wonder about 
studying just the exons. And, and we, you know, we do have a lot of emphasis these days on exome sequencing and, and that because it's something that's tractable. It's a, you know, it's a, a technically um, 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 approachable problem. On the other hand, it may not be the best place to look if, uh, if these things are non-coding. Uh, and then we just, we just sort of collect, uh, corrected for the bias in the chips because if you, um, if you look at these, these SNP arrays, they are not put together randomly. They really are, are SNPs are selected to go onto the chips for ease of, of uh, uh, or technologic accuracy and reproducibility as well as what their functional implications might be. So non-synonymous SNPs were over, overrepresented, SNPs were overrepresented in the chips, but even so, so this is what it would have been if you just sampled randomly from the arrays as they were put together. Um, but you're still uh, mass massively overrepresenting non-synonymous chips in the associations. Introns are, are associated in about the proportion that they're present on the chips. Intergenic regions are, are uh, uh, associated in, in a lower proportion than, than they are represented on the chips, um, So, which makes sense. I mean, I, I think we, we all still believe that genes do something, um, but there's still a lot to be learned in the, in the intergenic regions. So those are just the ones that are significant. And another um, kind of surprising lesson was that the odds ratios here are really quite small. So so looking at the odds ratios of, uh, uh, of associations um, detected, you can see that there are a few that kind of get out way out into these, these very high ranges, but most of them are really quite small, uh, with the median being about 1.28. These are, are a little bit older data, but it's, it's really been pretty much holding up to be that. In fact, numbers are probably going down because sample sizes are going up, and as your sample size goes up, you are able to detect those with even smaller effect sizes. So, so these are not big effect things. And again, the question has come up, well, they can't possibly mean anything um, if they're of, of small effect, and we would, we would argue with that. So, um, so what did we learn from this? I think we, we know a whole lot more about the genome than we did five years ago when this, when this started. Uh, we also know a whole lot less about the genome than we did five years ago, because uh, in many ways this, these have raised more questions perhaps than they've even answered. Um, let's see if this will. Um, and to date, most, most genetic effects found through this approach have been uh, pretty modest, and uh, there's been limited work to date on the X and, and really nothing on the, on the Y chromosomes, and would encourage uh, people to try to correct that problem. Um, there's been limited work on environmental modifiers, again, because it's hard. Um, we, we can measure the genome really very, very reliable. We don't measure environment very well at all, and, and that's part of the, of the challenge. Um, so, so something that, that needs to be done much more. We're starting to see studies of, of uh, response to drugs, but even those studies are, are small, and, which is a shame because drug responses actually tend to have large odds ratios, so you don't need huge studies to do it. And, and as I think people are, are getting better at extracting drug-related phenotypes, we'll see more of those kinds of studies, and I think they're a real uh, opportunity. There's limited work on characterizing the full spectrum of effects or the function of the genome-wide association-defined variants. So most of these variants, we really don't know what their functional role is at all. The, the um, um, perception is that they probably don't have a functional role, they're just markers. But on the other hand, when you start looking at where these things land in terms of chromatin marks, there are about half of them fall in DNA's hypersensitive sites. DNA's hypersensitive sites are the areas of the genome where um, the, basically the chromatin is open and available not only for DNAs to cut it, but also for the um, uh, transcription machinery to kind of glom on and start um, uh, transcribing and, and making messenger RNA to run the, do the things that a cell does. So it indicates that those are areas that are likely to be functional, and, and fully half of genome-wide association hits are falling there. So we need to do much more work in that area. Um, very, very little work in non-European ancestry populations. This is a huge problem. Uh, we're getting more and more from uh, Chinese and Japanese populations in Asia, but uh, very little in African ancestry groups. Again, something that we try very hard to, to try to address. Very little work in Hispanic Latino populations. And, you know, there are differences in LD, and those differences in LD are, are likely to be very instructive in terms of, of what might be um, the, sort of the causative locus, or at least closer to the causal locus. Uh, so about this time, there's one of my Gary Larson's. Uh, you're beginning to wonder, what does this have to do with genomic medicine? Has she read the title? And you see here, when birds don't read, the fountain of youth, and that's what happens. So at any rate, um, so I did. And, and yes, we are, uh, you know, are we on the threshold? I, I would kind of refer you back to, if you haven't seen it before, um, this uh, strategic plan from the NHGRI that was a, about a two or three year process in, in developing. Uh, Eric Green is our, our director now since Francis stepped down. 
Eric's been in place for about a year and a half. Um, and essentially what he wanted to do was to say, all right, let's take a, a hard look at where we are and, and where we can be going. Um, and um, made as sort of the centerpiece, you know, really getting us from bench to bedside and, and more than um, uh, just in the, in the wording, but, uh, but also how, how can we actually implement genomic medicine using a person's genome to inform their medical care. Um, this was, um, when we were putting this together, uh, I was asked to kind of lead the health applications group. So, so we had kind of a basic group, as, as you might imagine, in, a, in an institute like ours where there's a, a lot of basic understanding of the structure and func function of the genome, and then there's, well, what do we do with it? So, so I was involved in, in leading that group, and we were trying to, you know, how, how do you even begin to tackle this? And so we sort of thought, all right, suppose, you know, we end up at the pearly gates, hopefully some of us, um, and, and St. Peter asks us, okay, what have you done for human Humankind, what are the things we'd like to say that genomic medicine has been able to do? Well, you know, we'd like to be able to identify risk of, of patients um, for disease. We'd like to prevent the diseases that we do identify risk for. We'd like to improve diagnostic, diagnostics, improve treatments, and increase access. And, and so these were sort of the, this is kind of the wish list of, of we'd, we would feel we'd done a good job if, if we could do these things. Well, then how to get there? Um, and there are, in, within the, the strategic plan, there are sort of a series of boxes. One of them is the imperatives for for genomic medicine, things that we kind of need to have in order to make it happen, and then things we, we would like to make happen. So we'd like to make genomics-based diagnostics routine. Um, I practice over at the, the now Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, what used to be Bethesda uh, Naval uh, Hospital, and we can't get these, we can't get genetic tests back three, four weeks, whatever, you know, we order them, they never come back. And, and this is a huge problem and, and something that I don't think is unique to our setting. Uh, probably doesn't happen here at Duke, but it, it happens to us. Um, defining genetic components of diseases, so can we understand what, what the genetic influences are, recognizing that genes are not deterministic in most, certainly not in complex diseases. Um, and, and how do those interact with other, other factors, particularly the environment. Characterizing cancer genomes, an area that we've been very active in with, with the Cancer Genome Atlas in, in collaboration with the NCI. Uh, practical systems for clinical geno genomic informatics. So how can we get genomic information, if not into the medical record, at least available to the medical record to be queried when it's appropriate and, and presented to a clinician when it's needed and kept sort of in the background when it's not needed. Um, and the role of the microbiome is another, another area that uh, uh, I'm not as directly involved in, but we recognize as being very important and, and now tractable because we can sequence the organism as much as we can, we can sequence the individual. Um, so as this plan then evolved, we, we kind of focused on five domains, as it were, of genomic research, kind of starting with our bedrock, understanding the structure of genomes, um, which then can kind of lead you to the biology of genomes. But, you know, when you learn something about this, you want to go back and look at the structure. So this is by no means kind of a linear process. Um, from the biology of genomes, we'd like to understand more about the biology of disease, since that's kind of where we're, we're heading, and then advance the science of medicine and, and then uh, improve the effectiveness or the accessibility, availability, the low cost, et cetera, of, of healthcare. Um, so those were kind of the five areas that, that became uh, sort of codified in this diagram here. Um, certainly in our first, these are the, the first um, 10 years or so of the, of the Institute through 2000 with the Human Genome Project, really focused on sequ sequencing the genome, and that was, you know, almost entirely uh, looking at the structure of genomes. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, up until about the last one to two years, we've been trying to understand how this works. Now that we have kind of the parts list, you want to, you want to know how it functions. Um, in, the, in the 2011 to 2020, which is just sort of the next, uh, currently to the next 10 years, we, we really have, and this is kind of a heat map of where our, our activities are, uh, much more in the biology of disease, particularly my group. I was brought over from the Heart Institute to basically apply genomic technologies in population studies. As Jeff said, I'm an epidemiologist. And so can we take these genomics, uh, uh, genomic technologies, which had, uh, Genome Institute really been applied in people who had no phenotypes at all. I mean, you know, the HapMap samples and that were the, was kind of the most that they had gone in, in terms of, of human studies, and, and those are, are phenotype-free. So could we relate these to phenotypes and understand uh, a little bit more about what the associations were and what they might mean? Um, and then kind of moving into the science of medicine and the effectiveness of healthcare a little bit um, in the next 10 years, but hopefully in a big way um, 10 years from now. So, so what is it really that we can do in this area? 
Um, so we ask that question, and, and the way we deal with these things in the government, and probably in other places too, is you know you put together a, a task force or a working group and have them investigate it. And so we uh, we did the same here. This was uh, we kind of split it. It may sound a little bit odd, but but actually NHGRI is is one of the what we call a non-categorical institute at, at NIH. There are 27 institutes and centers. Many of them are focused on organ systems or or tissues or whatever, like the Heart Institute, the Cancer Institute, and, and that kind of thing. And then there are are non-categorical institutes like us that when you know we're essentially focused on a molecule, um, but on a you know obviously a whole process and, and that. And there's the Center for Research Resources, the, the upcoming Center for uh, uh, Translational Sciences, etc. Um, so so we, we kind of split this into d disease oriented and then things that were a little bit more disease agnostic, as it were. Um, this is a the group from NHGRI that were involved in it, and then the uh, the group from from our council. You may recognize a name here. Um, so our uh, we each of the each of the institutes and centers has an, an advisory council that's sort of like a, a board, um, a governing board that meets three times a year, sometimes four times a year, um, and, and advises on scientific direction, strategic planning, that sort of thing. So, uh, so we kind of got these folks together and, and then essentially did a, um, a round robin of various institutes, you know, any institute that really was interested in talking with us about what they were doing that might be ready for, for application um, in terms of using the genome to improve medical care. And so we went to, to uh, 11 different institutes, uh, some may not be immediate, so this is aging, uh, the Arthritis Institute, Child Health, uh, Drug Abuse, uh, Dental, um, uh, Diabetes, uh, General Medical Sciences, which has a, a large presence in pharmacogenomics, uh, Mental Health, and the Neurology Institute. And just ask them, you know, what are the things that you're, you're uh, uh, thinking are, are really ready for implementation? Um, and we had some, some considerations in looking at the projects that we got back from them. How ready are they for clinical applications, sort of ready for prime time? Um, are, are samples and uh, consent and IRB approvals, are they available? Are they um, um, uh, sufficient for the kind of work we wanted to do? Or would recollection or re-consenting uh, be necessary? Not that that would be impossible, but obviously if you were ready, it was a little bit better than if you weren't. Um, specificity, importance of the clinical decisions and the outcomes that it would facilitate. So, so is it clear that this would actually actually change practice, um, that not everything had to, but this would be something that we felt was a, a little bit higher priority. Um, what would be the availability of the treatments? And especially in a situation where there might be multiple possible treatment options that genomics could help you to choose one or another. Uh, it'd be nice if whatever disease we were talking about or outcome had a, a short course so that you could, you know, get an answer um, fairly quickly. Um, we also were looking for things where maybe genomics could help with uh, difficulties in diagnosing or subtyping disease, where that might be helpful, be that cancer or different types of diabetes or and now a number of, of sort of molecular taxonomies that were uh, coming up with. Um, being, being the genomic institute, we thought it'd be nice if the disease had some or the condition had some evidence of heritability, which we don't always have. Um, and then whether, you know, the, the genetic architecture, is it a single gene or does it sort of a, a affect or influence or be influenced by uh, much more of a, a genomic flavor since we are the Genome Institute, we try to look a little bit more broadly. Um, it, we'd certainly want something that had a high incidence of prevalence. If it was very, very rare, it could also be very important, but, uh, but these would be um, things that, that might uh, um, tend to swing us in one direction or another. If there were high mortality and public health impact, significant population disparities, um, we obviously are try to be pra practical people. And um, if the cost of a given study or proposal was very high, or if we could leverage available funds, you know, that was a little bit better. And if we had um, uh, partners, we call it ICs or is NI shorthand for the other institutes and centers. Um, uh, if there were enthusiastic partners, that was also a, a very helpful thing um, shown here. <laughs> All right, Rusty's in the club having run through the traffic here. So, so this is what we were looking for was somebody to join our club or we, we would get to join theirs. Um, interestingly, one, one of the things you learn about, about science is that sometimes that's the most important driver. Um, you'd think it would be the scientific question in that, but a lot of times it's, you know, can, can we work with these people? You know, can, can we make this happen? I'm sure, again, that doesn't happen at Duke. But. <laughs> At any rate, um, so we actually identified a, a bunch of things. There were about a hundred different ideas that came from talking with these 11 institutes, and a lot of enthusiasm, lots of people.
people you know wanted to come sit down with us and, and discuss this at, at a very high level. Um, just a couple of sort of a smattering of things, and, and I understand my slides live on somewhere on some website, so so you're welcome to you know take a look at these. I, I don't think you can hold these institutes necessarily to oh Terry Manolio said you were interested in <laughs> targeted therapy for Crohn's, but you know it might give you a little a little room for thought at least. Um, so could we could we identify through genomic signatures what might be um, an appropriate therapy for, for someone. And Crohn's, obviously, there are many, many um, um, treatments that you can choose among. Osteoporosis, the same way. Some have greater risks and benefits than others. And currently, I think we tend to, test, to uh, evaluate them on the basis of, uh, you know, sort of start with the low costs. Um, lowest risk ones and then kind of advance to higher cost, potentially higher risk ones. There may be ways to inform that, those decisions uh, uh, genomically. Smoking cessation prevention, I was talking with some folks back there about whether you could target therapy. Um, which, you know, nic do you give people nicoderm, do you give them something else, uh, uh, varenicline or whatever. Um, there, we're kind of a tool building institute. That's what the Genome Project was all about. Um, and so could we build some tools for, for instance, low cost screening for risk for type 1 diabetes? Uh, one of the things I learned, which I was embarrassed not to have known, was that type 1 diabetes actually is sort of a poster child for explaining the, the genetic risk. We probably explain 60 to 70 percent of the heritability in, in type 1 diabetes, primarily because it's, there's such a strong spike in the, in the autoimmune um, HLA locus in that. But, but even aside from that, there are you know, a small number of very high impact genes. Um, so, so that might be a, a, an area where you might want to put together a chip for, to screen either siblings or relatives or whatever people with uh, um, type 1 diabetes to see if they're going to develop it, especially if there's an, an um, intervention that you can do to prevent that from happening. Uh, a NICO chip, there's interest in developing something along those lines for tobacco dependence, maybe catalog sequence variants in, in undefined developmental disorders. I understand this is going on in the UK where they're basically taking um, children with uh, uh, developmental disorders that have not been diagnosed and, uh, and essentially finding as many sequence variants as possible, putting those into a catalog where others who have similar kinds of syndromes, their docs uh, presumably, um, would be able to look and see if there are some commonalities there. Um, we, we had what we called the full Monty approach to, uh, to given diseases which you, that you either really didn't understand or that you felt you, know, you were kind of right on the threshold. So could you throw every omic technology at it um, that there was, you know, proteomics, metabolomics, and genomics, and, and epigenomics, and all of that? Um, and we, we kind of asked that question of each institute, and the, and the areas where that was felt that might be a, a useful thing would be autism and schizophrenia, just because they are, they are such obscure diseases now in terms of understanding the etiology, although we, you know, we're making some progress, I think. Um, high ri highest risk, for example, of non-response to, to Crohn's disease uh, uh, treatment. One of the nice things about Crohn's, not, maybe not for the patient, but, but certainly for those who want to study their genomics, is that the way they follow them is no longer by symptom scores, but by biopsy. So they get very frequent biopsies, and you have tissue, and you can do RNA or whatever you want to, to do with it, so, um, so a real uh, possibility there. Uh, post-radiation treatment tissue, uh, uh, sorry, post-radiation treatment tissue toxicity, um, so normal tissue that gets, sort of gets in the way of radiation and, and develops toxicity. Are there genomic uh, predictors of that, and are there things that you could do to protect the normal tissue while still rendering the, uh, the tumor that you're trying to get rid of uh, susceptible? Um, and then, you know, there were a few highly specialized topics that were really quite important for a given area. One of them, just as an example, um, clozapine, you, you may know, is a, a second-generation antipsychotic. Apparently, one of the most effective, if not the most effective, uh, antipsychotic for, for schizophrenia in particular that, that there is. Um, clozapine got a bad name because it, it uh, can, in very rare cases, cause agranulocytosis, which is, you know, basically no immune cells in the, in the uh, bone marrow. Sometimes it gets better, sometimes it doesn't. I would note that there are many drugs that do this. Um, uh, thy antithyroid drugs are, are um, well known for doing it, some antibiotics. Those are still in, in use. Clozapine has dropped out of use um, potentially or partially because of sort of marketing wars where, where uh, basically makers of other antipsychotics have said, oh, you can't use that. You know what it does. Here, use our drug. And, and those other drugs are really not nearly as effective. Um, so if one could identify what it is that puts people at risk for, for this very rare side effect and, you know, give the drug to the 99% of people who don't have that variant, that would be a, a very, very helpful thing in, in uh, uh, psychiatry. 
Uh, other areas, molecular phenotyping, um, I, as I mentioned, molecular taxonomies, particularly in areas where you're having trouble making diagnoses. Again, genetics may not inform all of it, but it might be helpful. And I know, uh, you know, as a, as a practicing clinician, I can never tell one rheumatologic disease from another. I mean, all the serologic tests, they're all sort of vaguely positive and, and that, and it's, it can be really, really tough. Um, and yet those things might be extremely helpful in sort of predicting what the treatment should be, what the course may be, et cetera. Um, uh, examining somatic mutations and, and epigenetics. So can we, can we use uh, uh, genomic technologies to do that, uh, particularly in, in some of the uh, diseases that the Dental Institute was quite interested in, Sjogren's, Crohn's disease, and, and inflammatory bowel disease, obviously, uh, as well. And then there was a list of maybe 50 things um, that was kind of, kind of, can we use genome-wide association or sequencing to learn more about, and then, you know, name your favorite disease. And it surprised us that there were this many of, of them. Um, unfortunately, Given the way that, that institutes sort of pursue scientific opportunities, the, these were seemed to, seemed to be things where NHGRI really couldn't contribute. What we had was the, you know, the genome association technology and the sequencing technology, which we'd already developed. And so it sort of, you know, go forth and prosper and, and apply these in your populations. But, but probably not something that we would be, you know, terribly actively involved in, but still something to kind of keep on the list. Um, also, some, some very basic, you know, and really not related to, to uh, genomic medicine at all, but things that, that, again, you might want to encourage folks to do, such as, golly, can you possibly find the functional variants underlying these genome-wide association signals? And more importantly, can we come up with a sort of pathway for doing that, a, a set of recommended steps? And, and that, I think, would be very useful and something that we could contribute to. Um, is there a way to standardize genomic profiling tests across centers, both across laboratories and in terms of reporting them back to clinicians so that they, it, the, every report doesn't look different, uh, essentially? Um, can we develop uh, QC quality control metrics for sequencing, for example, um, that would be used used in, in clinical care for CLIA certification, something that's, you know, logical, makes sense, and, and is practicable, um, rather than at one point I was in a, in a CLIA CMS discussion and somebody said, well, if you're measuring all three billion base pairs, you have to quality control each one. And we, we said we didn't think that that was really terribly feasible. So um, there also was a, a, a number of things that came both to our attention and to the kind of parallel group we had in, in disease agnostic applications. Um, and this, these two groups have now come back together, uh, including the, the large Kaiser Oakland study of, of 100,000 um, genome-wide association uh, patients, and really with, with a, a fair number of, of phenotypes in their medical records. You know, could we use that to develop and test decision support? Um, applying sequencing to newborn blood spots, a, a really interesting question, raises a lot of, of ethical and legal concerns, as well as, um, you know, what could we actually learn that could have a, a you know, a major impact on, on uh, uh, infants and children's health and health uh, later on. Uh, using omic approaches to facilitate rapid diagnosis in emergency settings. It's kind of an interesting one um, in, in that if, say, a, a patient came to you with absolutely no, you know, hopefully this won't happen. 10 years from now when we all have electronic medical records and can link them in ways that HIPAA doesn't, you know, get all over us for. But, but in the present setting, if somebody rolls into an emergency room and you know nothing about them, is there something about their genome that you could test very rapidly that would tell you important things in terms of, of trying to diagnose and treat them? Interesting question. I, you know, I, I remain sort of highly skeptical, but, um, but I think it's, it's uh, you know, a testable question and something we could, we could look into. Um, something we, we really have heard numerous times is organizing a, a, some kind of a consensus panel or consensus process to identify clinically actionable genomic results. Uh, as you may be aware, the, um, um, the CDC's uh, Public Health Genetics Office has uh, or had this EGAP process, which is the evidence uh, evaluation. I forgot what it stands for, forgive me. But, um, but at any rate, one of the, of the big objections to, to that process was that it was painfully slow and nothing ever met the bar, which was essentially a randomized controlled clinical trial. And so is there some way to do this in a, in a little bit more nimble and, and practical way that you could, you know, not do any, anything you know, sort of off the cuff, but on the other hand, there's probably information in, in the genome that would be useful to a clinician and, and that perhaps should be made available to them. Um, and then develop and de disseminate. This was one that particularly from the PGRN group, the Pharmacogenetics Genomics Research Network, um, where they're, they're developing individual gene drug guidelines. So, so sort of like the EGAP process, going one gene drug pair at a time, um, is there some way to speed up that process and, and then uh, uh, implement them a little bit more? And we've, we've kind of taken three of these, and I, I, 
highlighted them here. So the, the sequencing newborn blood spots, again, we had a, a very enthusiastic partner in the Child Health Institute, so we're likely to move forward with this uh, fairly soon. Uh, organizing a panel to identify actionable uh, genomic results is something that we heard over and over and over again. We heard it in a uh, genomic medicine meeting that we organized that I'll tell you about in a moment. Um, and uh, uh, basically we'll be having sort of a first workshop to explore how we might go about doing this in December. Um, and then developing and disseminating gene drug guidelines is, is also another one where we saw a real potential for, uh, for collaboration. Um, so as, as we were looking at these 100 projects, we noticed that five, you know, we kind of pulled out maybe the top 10 that seemed to be closest to, to being able to be implemented, and five of them uh, were in pharmacogenetics. Uh, and they're, they're just kind of listed here. Uh, this one I've already mentioned, um, uh, looking at adverse effects of anti-cancer therapies. Now, more the drugs than the radiation, though my argument would be you could use the same uh, approach for both. Um, the clozapine I've mentioned to you, uh, antiplatelet and anti-clotting uh, treatment to prevent stroke um, using known pharmacogenetic variants, um, the 1502 HLA-B variant, which is, has been associated with Stevens-Johnson syndrome and carbamazepine. Um, it's not really toxicity, it's an idiosyncratic effect uh, um, to, uh, to carbamazepine. Uh, but these were all things that, uh, that were felt to be you know, sort of on the cusp and, and ready to go. Uh, so what we're looking at doing now is to, is to have a partnership with the Pharmacogenomics Research Network uh, that has been funded by the National Institute of General Medical Sciences and a number of other um, institutes sort of shown down here along the bottom. Um, there we are, if you don't recognize uh, our, our little logo. But at any rate, um, uh, they've funded this now for I think about 12 years or so they've, they've been um, going. And, uh, and we're working now to, to uh, collaborate with them basically building on three components. Uh, PGRN has a, a number of, of uh, different components, and, and I would trust since Jeff is on their advisory board that at some point you might invite down one of, uh, one of the folks involved in that, or you probably already have. Um, and, oh, Dan's coming, yeah, in, in April, that's right. Um, so Dan Roden at, at Vanderbilt chairs their steering committee and, uh, and can tell you far more and far better about what they do than I. Um, but one of the interesting things about the way they've evolved is that they, they have sort of core projects that they're um, involved in. One of them is the Clinical Pharmacogenetic Implementation Committee or Consortium, I think, um, that are developing um, uh, guidelines within that consortium, as I said, sort of drug gene pair uh, by, by drug gene pair. These are vetted externally and they're, and they're sort of peer-reviewed and then published. And they have an agreement with Clinical Pharmacy and Therapeutics. So that's one group. They also have a translational pharmacogenomics program that was recently funded that takes these guidelines and puts them in small pilot studies in um, their uh, uh, clinical centers. And then what they call the Very Important Pharmacogenetics, or VIP, uh, gene sequencing program, um, which is, is funded basically to identify more variants in pharmacogenetically relevant genes. And currently, they're developing an array um, for now up to, to 80 um, pharmacogenetically important genes. And how to define what's important? Well, if the FDA has listed a um, sort of an, an indication that the genetics might be uh, influencing drug response, or if a particular group is interested in it for another reason and can justify that to, to at least one other group, then they sort of make it on the, on the list. Um, so what we, we thought we would do is sort of combine with those um, in, the, in the sequencing program, particularly in the VIP, to identify these 80 um, uh, variants in these 80 genes using a, a targeted sequencing array so that not only would you um, basically type all the common ones, but if you did it in large numbers of people, you could get more rare variant, identify um, uh, additional variants that might have an influence on, on response or that could be studied in, in greater depth, et cetera. So, so something that would be very useful, I think, to the, the Farm GKB group. Uh, they want to look particularly at the CYP2, 2D6. You may be aware um, uh, the cytochrome P450 system is involved in metabolism, uh, metabolism of most uh, drugs that we, we ingest. Um, and CYP2D6 is involved in, in metabolism about 25% of all prescribed drugs. So it's very heavily involved in these. It's also incredibly complex. There's a, there are a lot of duplications, um, many, many different kinds of alleles, many sort of a spectrum of, of how well you, you're able to metabolize uh, 2D6 uh, substrates. Um, and a lot of pseudogenes and other things are very difficult to type. And, and even though there are, are um, drug platforms, the ADME chip of Illumina, I think, and the DMET chip of Affymetrix, and I have no ties to any of those, so those are just the, the brand names that I happen to know, um, uh, they, they do a not very good job of, of assessing this one in particular. HLA is also a very difficult region to, to sequence and, and to analyze, and so they're, they're trying to target those two regions in, in particular. 
um, what we, we wanted to do was be sure that we were sort of adding value rather than either duplicating or, you know, better funding something that was probably underfunded to begin with, and we're sorry that that happened, but that's not sort of our business is to, to kind of make up other people's uh, uh, things that they haven't funded. But, um, but one was to develop a new, a new large-scale array and apply it for discovery and clinical care in large numbers of patients. So one, one thing that the, the PGRN was not designed to do was to kind of study things in, in large groups. They tend to be fairly small groups of people. They are developing some population resources. But, you know, at NIH we have large cohort studies and, and at NHGRI we have applied genome-wide association uh, to large, large cohorts as well. So is there some way that we could kind of drop this into to one of our studies that would be helpful to both groups? Um, something that we, were, we wanted to, to see happen with this chip that was being developed was that it needed to be exported to CLIA certified labs because CLIA really has been it was something that I was optimistic we might be able to deal with, but we can't. Um, you basically, if you're going to use stuff for clinical care, it, it really seems as though you'd, you'd have to have it done in a CLIA environment. That's not impossible, and it's actually even not that difficult. And I think in a lot of cases, um, we have folks kind of hiding behind CLIA as a, a reason that they can't give results back. Oh, well, it doesn't, wasn't done in a CLIA environment, so we can't, you know, we don't have to deal with uh, reporting stuff back to a patient or, or dealing with their clinician. Um, Hopefully we can we can change this by just you know in, ensuring that at least some of the work that, that we do is done in a CLIA environment so that we drop that barrier. Um, We'd, we'd want to, to be sure that we could genotype the common variants because you do want to have something useful to tell a patient. You don't want to get back, you know, a variant of unknown significance and don't know what to do with that and there's no action to, to advise the, uh, uh, the clinician on. So, so if you can find some of the common poor metabolizing genes, and I'll mention, I think, a few of them, um, that would be helpful to the patient. It would also be nice to discover some new ones that could be fed back to the PGRN group and they could improve their chip, so sort of a win-win. And then, wouldn't it be cool if you could implement it in large numbers of patients with electronic medical records so that you could easily phenotype them, follow them for, for outcome uh, over time? Um, and so the, the way we've envisioned this is to link uh, the PGRN with our eMERGE network, which is the electronic medical records and genomics um, network I'll talk about in a, in a moment, but basically was designed by us about five years ago to essentially take the biorepositories that had kind of been springing up all around the country and, and link them together in terms of, you know, what's the best way of using these resources for genomic research? Do we have adequate consent? Do we have good biosamples? Do we have good medical records? Can we do phenotyping in these medical records, et cetera? Um, so if we, if we kind of take the, uh, the, the VIP chip that's being developed by this group, the, the sequencing array, um, so we'd get a state-of-the-art um, array for use in, in eMERGE, there'd be ability to update it. We would also take their drug gene guidelines um, and, you know, to the, to the degree possible, be applying those. Um, and we would uh, learn from them also what the CLIA standards and QC requirements might be. Um, and then coming up from, from eMERGE, um, you, you sort of have a, a more real world, not totally real world, but at least a, a little bit more robust a test of, of using these things in um, environments that are not as, as focused on pharmacogenetics. You have a very large patient base. Uh, electronic phenotyping is a real strength in eMERGE. Um, privacy concerns is an area that uh, has, has um, developed a, a fair amount of, of research within eMERGE and the Vanderbilt group particularly leading that effort. Um, and then they also have experience in, in clinical consultation and feeding uh, these, these results back to patients and their clinicians. So that's uh, what, we're, what we're looking at in terms of, of uh, that kind of a collaboration. So those are the things that we kind of got out of our discussions internally with, um, and then going externally and talking with the various institutes and then talking with their investigators. Um, Jeff raised the, the suggestion in, in working with our group that, gee, you know, we don't just want to stay within NIH. We want to get ideas from outside. How could we best do that? Um, and one way to do it, again, at, at his suggestion, was to sort of bring together groups like yours that have um, within their, uh, their institutions the mandate for taking genomic results genetic results, but mainly genomic results, so on a much broader scale, um, and uh, applying them for, for improving uh, patients' care. And we identified about 20 such groups. Uh, not all of them are represented here because we, you know, put this meeting together within about two months and not everybody was available and, and that sort of thing. Um, but a large number of them were willing to fly to Chicago actually on their own dime because we had spent all of our travel money and we said, you know, we're really sorry, but if you'd like to come, we'd love to have you, and they came. Um, and, uh, and several of our, our uh, uh, partner institutes also 
also attended. Um, so a very lively discussion. We asked them what projects they were currently doing um, or what they were planning to do uh, very soon. What were the barriers to the clinical adoption of genomics in medicine? So what were the things standing in the way? Uh, how have they solved those things? And are those things that, that could be learned by other genomic medicine institutes? And then asking the question, what role can we play in facilitating the, the adoption of genomics in, in medical care, uh, be it infrastructure, be it research programs or, or other things? Um, as I mentioned, over 20 centers came. Uh, they were supported through uh, multiple NIH and, and also institutional mechanisms. I mean, a, a fair amount of this is at the level, and I'm sure you've run into this argument as well, where you, you sort of hear from peer reviewers, this isn't science, this is clinical practice, it, you know, it doesn't need research dollars, it needs, you know, this should, this should be part of patient care or it should be explored in patient care or whatever. An argument that I, I find uh, not terribly satisfying, but, but regardless, um, happily many institutions have at least recognized the need to kind of take that up and, and have pursued it. Um, it seemed as though there, there might be numerous uh, similar and overlapping efforts that uh, perhaps we could pull together so that not everybody is duplicating the, the work that they're doing. Actionable variance is a, is a good example. Probably every one of these groups has sat down and said, should we be reporting CYP2C19 variants in people taking clopidogrel or considering taking clopidogrel or, or whatever? Um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, a lot of shared needs. Uh, we felt that, that the group would benefit from periodic interactions and from some degree of coordination, um, perhaps consensus building, but uh, we want to be sure that we're facilitating and, and really not sort of getting in the way uh, of these. And so um, what has grown out of this is a genomic medicine effort within NHGRI, again, um, involving other institutes to identify research directions and priority, promote collaborations among the existing groups, um, stimulate, you know, where, where possible, uh, investigator-initiated efforts. We feel strongly that what sort of bubbles up from the community is likely to be the most creative, most sort of innovative in that. By the time we identify an idea, regardless of how it's suggested to us, and we um, um, prove that it's a gap area and and get our solicitation out and get it back, you know, the science has changed. And, and so we're, we tend not to be a, a nimble responder. But there are times when we need to issue funding solicitations to fill those gaps, and we would do that. Um, we also want to learn more about genomic medicine centers among our staff by visiting, which is one of the reasons I'm here. Um, when I, I do these visits, I try to bring colleagues with me, and unfortunately, this turned out to be a date that, uh, that they were unavailable, so my apologies. Um, and then we've, we've established a working group as a subcommittee of our council, um, and the, the members of that are shown here. Uh, Jeff just rotated off of our council, but we have a couple of other uh, members, Rex and, and Pearl, um, and then uh, uh, three NHGRI members. So, you know, more to come from that group, uh, I'm sure. And we did identify from the June meeting um, a series of, of meetings, workshops, needs. Generally what we do, you know, one of the nice things of, of being at NIH is that we can kind of call people together in, in sort of a think tank format. And so we, we, you know, use that a fair amount to get ideas that we may not even be in a position to follow, but we can put out a statement um, that then others can, can pursue. Um, so it was fairly clear that we needed uh, to address actionable variants, and as I mentioned, that will be happening um, in another, um, in December. Um, collaborative demonstration projects is an area that we would like to bring these groups together and see what are the things that you're doing that perhaps could be done at multiple sites, and, and you could diversify and generalize your approach to, to things as well as, as sort of uh, limit duplication of effort. Um, standardizing and quality control of clinical genomic testing, another area that was identified as a real need, um, and that will likely be in May. Um, should we be developing more evidence um, for actionable variants? You know, sort of building on this group, the, unlike, uh, undoubtedly they will say, gee, if only we knew a little bit more about variant X or about area Y, um, we could uh, have some recommendations for actionable variants. And so, so likely that would be uh, perhaps in the fall. Uh, maybe we need to, to develop evidence for the effectiveness of genomic medicine. I mean, we do hear that time and time again, and so that might be an area as well. Um, policy needs, another area, education, training, user support, uh, all our, our infrastructure needs. Uh, we do worry a bit about, um, you know, this is a lot of meetings, a lot of workshops, a lot of trips to Bethesda, and, and similarly, and again, um, a Gary Larson avoiding meeting hell. Oh man, the coffee's cold, they thought of everything. So, so um, we, we would hope to do this in an efficient way and, uh, and, and find other ways other than, you know, trucking people to to Bethesda or wherever. But on the other hand, getting people in a room or, you know, for a day or two to, to really focus on an area has been extremely effective for, for us. Um, you know, it's 10 of 10. I'm, I'm happy to stop rather than go into Emerge, or I could describe Emerge briefly. Uh, maybe I can, I can ask if there are, you know, questions that people have at the moment. Would that make sense? Sure. 
whatever, whatever I want. So I haven't seen perplexed looks so far, so, which, is a, which is probably a good thing, and, and you know, not too many people having trouble following me. So, um, so let me talk a, a little bit about Emerge, and then I'll stop uh, at that point. So um, Emerge started, as I mentioned, about five years ago. Um, we, we began it because we recognized that there were all these biorepositories basically springing up in almost every large hospital system. We said, you know, there's got to be some gold, gold in them are hills or gold in them are samples. And, and so what if we collect all of these and, and, you know, genotype them and relate them to outcomes and maybe we'll find something, you know, frankly, you know, that we could patent or, or, uh, or that we could otherwise um, um, use. And, and so this was happening in, in a way that it was not clear if the samples or the consent were adequate for genomic research and particularly, you know, our strong interest in data sharing because we, I think we have um, had fairly conclusive evidence that data sharing massively accelerated the Human Genome Project, as well as, as other kinds of studies in the HapMap and, and elsewhere. Um, there really weren't any community-wide standards for doing this kind of research. There, um, the question arose, is it even possible? Everybody knows that uh, phenotypes defined by, by clinicians are going to be not only non-standardized, but, you know, um, probably not terribly useful. Um, and then um, um, could we develop approaches for potential large-scale U.S. study using EMR-defined outcomes? So you, you may be aware that, uh, that Francis has written a, uh, a series of, of articles basically saying we need a large cohort study in the U.S. similar to the U.K. Biobank and other uh, similar repositories. And, you know, could this be a way potentially for using these outcomes? Um, or developing these outcomes for such a study. Uh, this is the network. I won't go into all of the sites and that, but these are the various um, uh, phenotypes that they've all focused on uh, individually. And then we have a couple of network-wide phenotypes, hypothyroidism and resistant hypertension, that were chosen for a variety of reasons that I, I needn't go into. Uh, let's see where we are. Um, these are kind of the characteristics. Just starting, we, we recently refunded this, so, so there are two additional centers. But at the at the beginning, we had five centers. And just to give you a feel, these are very different kinds of electronic medical record systems. Many of them were homegrown. Mayo Clinic likes to tell us that they were the very first uh, electronic medical record, and maybe they were. Um, but they unfortunately still have the same system. Um, and you know, I mean, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, don't you know? Don't get me wrong. It's it's really a, a very slick system, but it's theirs. And and so how transportable are stuff that they develop? To, to other sites, that's a, a big question, and the same thing for, for many of the others and these kind of the sizes of the populations that they had. The approaches that they use for, for um, getting them, so this SDE is a structured data extraction, um, so it's some, some data sometimes are, are uh, stored in a predefined format, such as laboratory results, radiology results, some of them, um, and then there's, there's also free text, which you, in, in order to mine free text, it's a, it's a much more intensive process. Natural language processing is one approach to doing this. Um, uh, Intelligent character recognition is another. So, so there are a variety of sort of informatic-y approaches to, to dealing with this. Um, there, there have been a, a number of algorithms uh, um, published and, and basically how one can use electronic health records in, in uh, doing phenotyping. I won't go into those now. So this is uh, just talking about sort of the clinical standard versus a, an EMR-based standard where you could use multiple categories versus usually a clinical standard is a, is a clinician's diagnosis, um, sometimes uh, based on, on various criteria often in genome-wide studies, it's just somebody said somebody had Crohn's disease, and, and that's the phenotype. So, um, and then the data categories that would come out. Just one thing I did want to kind of point out, something that, that worries me a bit, um, in terms of data completeness by type and site, so these are the five sites um, uh, shown down here, the five original sites. Data completeness for diagnoses, as you might expect, was, was fairly high. That was reassuring. Uh, for medications was also quite high. For allergies, a little bit lower, um, and, and that's, you know, something that I think we could, we could probably, and they would want to work on. The one that was the worst was family history. There were, there were three sites that couldn't even tell us um, whether they had family history available or not, and these are in top places with electronic medical records, and, and two sites that had, you know, barely 25% uh, of, of their, their records recording family history. So, so we can't do family history. How in the world are we going to do sequence data? Um, and, and I understand that, that you all are, are working very actively in that area, and I, I applaud that. I, I think it's something that badly needs to be done. Um, I'm not going to talk about phenotype development, other than that it's really hard. Uh, we do have, it takes a long time. We have a, a, a website, uh, as does everyone, but the Emerge Network, if you just uh, search Emerge Network, I think it will come right up. Um, and it describes, uh, if you click on it, there it is, um, the, the various uh, resources, including um, the phenotype 
areas it's on here somewhere. Um, so these are phenotype resources, network resources, and publicly available tools. There's a library of phenotype algorithms, and if you click on that, um, it shows the, the ones that we have done so far. Um, so we've done like 14 so far. There are thousands to be done, and obviously we need to find a, you know, a, a simpler and, and easier way of, of doing this. So that's just the one for cardiac conduction. I think at this point I'll probably stop. This was just an example that yes, you can use it and you get better phenotyping um, if, you, if you use natural language processing. But why don't I stop there and, and I'd be happy to take any questions and thank you for your attention. Sure. Yeah, well, no, good, good question, and, and probably the Thousand Genomes Projects, at least from an NIH and Wellcome Trust point of view, um, is, is probably the best approach that we have to that so far. So the Thousand Genomes Project was um, def uh, basically established to address this particular problem and also to, to find um, sequence variants that were prevalent at, a, at about a, a 0.5 percent. Actually, I think initially it was 1 percent, and now it's dropped down to about 0.5. So a minor allele frequency of, of you know, 1 in, one in 100, 1 in 200 or, or so. Recognizing that the HapMap project was down to, I believe, 5 in 100, so it was, it was supposed to get the 5% variance. Well, the, the problem with that is, you know, it's not a linear thing. It's, it's, it is exponential, um, and, and so it's, it's far more work to get down from 5% to 1% than it was from 25% to, to 20% or whatever. Um, so, and that has been done in, in five or six different population groups, you know, major, major ethnicities. But probably the, the better answer is, is that with costs of sequencing coming down as dramatically as they are, and I, I was at the 2000 three strategic planning meeting for NHGRI um, where somebody proposed the $1,000 genome and people laughed and they said, you know, there's, there's no way that will ever happen. And they said, well, no, probably not, you know, but if we could get it to 100,000 when at the time the cost was 100 million, you know, that would be really good. Um, and, and we probably will get to the $1,000 uh, genome fairly soon. Um, and, and I think that's what will really open the door. And, and we are getting inquiries from a number of, of countries that are they're basically, you know, India and obviously the Chinese are already doing this, the Japanese is, as well. Um, but even those that are they're a little bit further behind those, um, really wanting to have their own reference genome. So, so I think it's, it's you know, going to be the, sort of the outgrowth of the dissemination of the technology. So wait a little bit longer, hopefully. And, yeah, and I think, I think we are, you know, to some degree stimulating some of that, which is, which is great. And yeah, partnering. Mm, that, you know, it, it's a little bit tough. We can certainly provide recommendations and guidelines in that, you, you know, some other countries may say, we don't need your standards. You know, we, we have our own, we have our own good scientists, and we'll figure out our, our own approaches. Uh, I think, you know, there we would tend to rely on peer review for, for what, what would be widely accepted in the scientific community, and most countries, I think, would accept the same as well. There is, I and mean, that was what, what we had really aimed for in the second phase of, of eMERGE was, okay, now we, you know, we've done this genome-wide association and this is really cool and, and, you know, discovery and all of that jazz, but now we need to use it. Um, and interestingly enough, it was very difficult to approach that in the eMERGE centers, um, uh, mainly because, uh, you know, part, partly this CLIA certification issue that the genotyping had not been done in, in CLIA environments, but also a lot of the, the sites just really weren't ready for that. Their clinicians weren't ready, their, their laboratories and, and other things. And so, so they kind of, what they proposed were more infrastructure building, you know, we'll do surveys and focus groups, find out what the patients want, find out what the clinicians want, which is important work and needs to be done, but we really wanted to see something a little bit more along the lines, which is one of the reasons now we're kind of moving in with the, the pharmacogenetic approach and basically saying, look, you you know, there, there's clearly some variants that you can act on now, um, even though there isn't a randomized clinical trial, and there were some groups that said, we can't do it without a randomized clinical trial. Uh, in terms of patient care, we could do it as a research project. So okay, we'll implement it as a research project, collect information around that, try to convince people. Um, but if we can use a broader chip, you know, it's, if it's just as cheap to genotype one, one pharmacogenetic gene as it is to do, to do 80 of them, um, we can probably provide that information to a clinician with at least some recommendations um, that would be based on, you know, a person is a, is a poor metabolizer of a given drug, just be, just be careful. And I think even, you know, that kind of advice to a clinician who's dealing with somebody on 15 drugs or whatever, and Dan, Dan Roden will tell you that, you know, 
almost 65% of, of their patient population, their average middle age, you know, primary care population, 65% are on at least one drug that has a pharmacogenetic, you know, major um, um, variant as identified by the FDA. And I think it's something like 12% are on five or more. I mean, you know, so, so this is something that could be really quite useful, and, and that's where we're hoping to go. But it's, it's really hard to push in this direction. Um, <coughs> One, one of the things we want to get around is this idea that, that a randomized clinical trial is needed for everything. Sure, it's, it's needed for certain things, particularly where, you know, there are considerable risks of a treatment versus, versus the benefits. But, but when you're talking about, you know, another piece of evidence that a clinician would use to inform a judgment, not deterministic, but at least to inform a judgment, I think that the level, the bar can be much lower. They're not even there. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Possibly moving towards translation, but a lot of the work that you're showing us now in NHGRI's strategic plan and maybe some of the things that the other ICs are contemplating mm -hmm. would be further downstream. So, do you see some sort of rebalancing of, of how NIH is going to actually fund mm -hmm. projects in terms of moving away or somehow moving away from? discovery-based research and mechanistic-based research to translational implementation research? Yeah, I guess uh, moving away might be a, <laughs> might be a, bad, a bad way, of, because we have to keep doing that work. I mean, it's, it's critical. It's, it's our foundation. It's our bedrock, and, and certainly we would, we would continue doing it. I think where you're right, where we have, if, if not failed, at least been a little bit neglectful is, okay, it's not somebody else's job to figure out how, how to make this work in, in a clinical setting. It really is part, of, part and parcel of our job. Um, I think there had been a tendency to sort of say, well, that, you know, the CDC does that or health departments or whatever. Well, they really deal on a population basis. They don't deal with individual clinicians. And professional organizations are hamstrung in many ways a, because, you know, most of them are not funding organizations. When they do fund, they fund relatively small um, projects. But, but in addition, they, they in, in many cases, you know, sort of either don't have the clout or, or are, are driven by this perception that everything has to have a randomized clinical trial. And who does the randomized clinical trials? It's not them. It's either industry or, or the NIH. And so, so you get kind of stuck in this, you know, this endless do loop, as it as it were. Um, so I think we are seeing much more. You know, much as as happened in the hypertension area. If I can go back to my cardiovascular roots, where we did these wonderful clinical trials showing that you know um, really does matter if you control somebody's blood pressure. But then it wasn't getting adopted, and the, you know things weren't being used other than what was driven by sort of marketing pressures uh, to use the latest, greatest, most expensive um, drug. And and I think NHLBI and other groups have have been very proactive in terms of let's get some dissemination science out there and some demonstration projects to show how you do this, not only what do you do, but how do you do it and whom do you do it. Uh, and I think the same thing is going to happen in, in genomics, and that's certainly where we're trying to go um, for, for genomic medicine. So, you know, fingers crossed that that'll, that'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, uh, not, thank you for a fantastic Certainly. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.